Good morning, everyone. My name is Patty Sellers. Um, I'm an editor at large at Fortune. And uh, you can also call this panel the men in blue. <laughs> I swear they didn't yeah. coordinate this morning. Um, if you're, uh, I'm, I've been at Time Incorporated for 26 years. I'm an editor at large at Fortune. And um, if you're sitting here already with your Blackberries in your hand, um, you probably belong here. <laughs> um, people, uh, the average uh, person, worker, is getting two times as many emails today as they were getting a couple of years ago. And uh, David Craig from Thomson Reuters is going to be, uh, who's at the end here, is going to be um, <clears throat> starting this panel with a very short, with a short presentation. And um, before um, we get to that, I'd like to take each of, I'd like to ask each of our panelists to just talk for less than two minutes about who they are and why they're here. So, John, John I'm, Hagel. I'm John Tell Hagel. us why you're here. I'm co-chairman of a research center in Silicon Valley called the Center for the Edge. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of research around emerging business opportunities. One of the key issues is this question of information overload and how companies and business people can respond to that. Uh, as part of that research, we actually just published a book called The Power of Pull, um, which focuses on the broad changes that are occurring in the business landscape. Uh, one of the key themes is the notion that we're moving from a world of knowledge stocks where economic value hinges on protecting proprietary knowledge and efficiently extracting the value from that knowledge to a world of knowledge flows. The problem we all face is knowledge stocks are depreciated, depreciating at an accelerating rate. And so the only way you can continue to create value is by participating in more and more knowledge flows. Uh, so again, this is front and center in terms of the work we're doing. Um, in that context, I would just say that one of the key issues we frame for executives is the notion of return on attention. It's a different kind of ROA than we're used to. Uh, but the issue is that all of us, no matter how much technology there is, only have 24 hours in the day. And we're getting confronted with more and more options competing for that attention. Uh, and so how we manage that productivity of attention and what kinds of services are available to help us increase the return on attention, we think are increasingly going to determine who creates economic value in this world. Jim Fallows, why are you here? Uh, that's a question I was saying. It might ring through the crowd more and more as the uh, morning goes on. I think I'm here, uh, <laughs> instrumentally I'm here. I'm a writer for the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. The Atlantic is, of course, one of the producers of the Ideas Festival. So it's been fun to be in different sessions on different themes and see the connections and also differences on the topics. Individually, I'm here because in the journalistic world, I've been for a very long time interested in questions of how technology affects the way we know about things, the way we know or, or don't know. I think one of the early articles I wrote in The Atlantic about uh, connectedness was back in 1987 when we were living in Malaysia, where I, I would go to the, in order to connect with then MCI mail, my, uh, my link to the outside world, I'd haul a giant 30 or 40 pound sack of coins to the uh, payphone in downtown Malaysia and feed coins in there every three or four seconds while connecting my square, mo my square acoustic modem to the, the, the payphone. Since that time, I've been interested individually in how 
we make sense of the flow of information coming uh, to us. Also, in journalism, like you, Patty, I've been, been thinking about how we prepare our products, our information to meet the needs of people who are swamped with information. And what, what are the ways to distill the things that are, uh, are, are valuable? The old joke about editors, of course, and about journalism in general is that we are people who uh, separate the wheat from the chaff and give you the chaff. And seeing, <laughs> seeing how we can do that differently in this era is what part of my ongoing concern. David Craig, President and Chief Strategy Officer of, of Thomson Reuters. Um, talk for more than two minutes about why you're here. <laughs> Well, I'm going to take the liberty of uh, a few slides and to stand up. So um, thank you for the introduction. Actually, Patty's just promoted me, which is fantastic. So, um, I'm a vice president, but, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> but so um, 7.45 in the morning, it's pretty tough to talk about information and intelligence. But um, why, why are we here? Um, I, I think we're here because the world has a big problem. Um, and this came to light when we first met as a company. We're a young company um, in October uh, 2008 when the Lehman crash had just happened, and we sat there and said, um, had the financial crisis happened because of a lack of information? Um, and clearly the answer was no. In fact, it probably happened because of too much information and not enough intelligence around that information. Um, so why we care about this, we care because it's a really important issue. Um, we care because it's an important issue for people in this room and all leaders of, of business, of politics, um, of society, because they've been overwhelmed with information uh, and they're not able to function properly. So what I want to do is share a bit of research that we've done on this, this, um, this problem and share with some early insights, which are still in development, of where we think um, the solutions um, um, might lie. And it is 7.45 in the morning, so I'm going to try and keep a complicated problem as simple as possible. So I'm going to talk about three things. Um, I'm going to try and show off with some big numbers um, about the information explosion that we're seeing. Um, I'm going to talk about what we found when we asked professionals how they're responding to this information explosion um, and how they're so overwhelmed um, with that. And then I'm going to talk a little bit into the behavioral science of this, which is what is happening and what we're finding is that people are faced with an overwhelming tsunami of information, either reverting to gut or getting overanalytical. And that's one of the core problems that we see. And then finally, I'll present back to the, channel and, uh, uh, the, to, to the panel an idea that what we actually need is better um, not more information. Um, so firstly, before I over overwhelm you with big numbers, I'm going to start with some small numbers. Um, and just to show you the evolution of computing power and how this has caused a problem. This, I actually went back to my first PC computer about 20 years ago. Um, and it had, it's actually 32K. Um, and I remember upgrading it to 64K. And I must say the performance improvement was just outstanding, much more than I get now um, from my current <laughs> PC. But that was a while ago. And, and then as the numbers start increasing, you know, Skype, I still think, is the most downloaded piece of software ever. Um, maybe some of the iPad downloads are going to um, beat that, but at 20 million, you, know, you start to get a big community of people on electronic <coughs> communications. Then the numbers get bigger. Facebook claims, this is a little old now, it's grown bigger than that. They claim to have the biggest country in the world if you treat Facebook as a country of people. Um, this is an interesting one. This is actually on our network. Um, there's about 10 billion um, price updates um, going through the network a day. Um, that's an outstanding figure. If you just divide that by seconds in a day, you realize how quickly the financial markets are moving and how much information is, is flying around. And you know, largely that's due to electronic trading um, and all the algos that are out there that are computing this. Now the numbers start getting really big. I did engineering at university, and actually some of these Greek letters I had never even come across then. Um, so this is an estimate of the new data bytes a day. 
And then Google is supposedly you know, looking at 100 exabytes of, of data every day. So you kind of see this, this pattern of large amounts of data. Um, and I don't know how they estimate it, and I wouldn't know how you count it, but apparently there's 800 exabytes, uh, which for those who are interested is 10 to the 26, I think, of data. And it's growing by 50% um, every year. So a large amount of data, and, and those are big numbers, but let me just illustrate it um, with, a, with something I looked at yesterday, actually. We went through back into our databases and said, in 2009, if you looked at all the regulators in the world, in, just in banking, we just took financial services, how many updates were there in 2009? There was 11,000 updates, so regulatory changes, um, enforcement actions. That's over 40 a day. So if you're a bank, you're having to deal with 40 major updates a day that are coming at you about how you change your business. So this isn't just about you know, large amounts of storage and computing power. It's real for professionals because they're getting overwhelmed um, with this information. And yeah, we went to look at this. So we, we actually did surveys and studies. We, we, we surveyed about 300-plus um, professionals from a good um, broad set. Uh, we teamed up with London Business School and actually um, went <coughs> with their class of MBA students and asked them. Um, we screened a lot of things out. We took out spam. We took out all that junk email you get. Um, and yes, you know, the number of um, um, people receiving a large volume put 50 is doubling, um, both in professionals and students. But I think the interesting chart at the bottom um, was, was quite intriguing because what we learned there was that the, the old forms of communication, email, if I can call that old now, but phone and fax and newspapers, actually hasn't declined. But new forms of interaction and information have come on, on top of that. So you kind of think, well, how does, where does the new time come from? How do I get, as a professional, um, the ability to do email, phone, and fax, and also do blogs and video and other formats? So you can kind of see that there's not just more information from more people, but there's more channels of information. And the old channels haven't necessarily um, gone away. And this was proved by another little um, data point we had. We looked at, and this was very surprising, we looked at who's spending more than three hours a day reading journals um, um, and how many publications are people looking at. And actually, we thought this would go down. And I'm sure all the um, um, newspaper people in the room are very excited about this, but people are actually spending more time reading newspapers and reading journals and getting data. Um, and one of the factoids that we got from the survey was 75% of all the respondents who said they were overwhelmed with data also said they wanted more data. It was quite ironic. So there's this kind of consumption... Um, habit that we've all got, that we want more and more information about what's going on in the world, <coughs> and that is in itself creating this cycle of behavior um, for us. So professionals are overwhelmed. Um, there's not just too much data, but there's too many avenues of data. There's always another place you can go explore and find some more stuff that could be more interesting that you'd want to share with your friends and colleagues. And at the end of the day, you know, our jobs is not to hunt data. Our jobs is to lead and make decisions and, and form policy. Um, and do that. And so this is the problem that we're, um, that we're seeing. So what's the solution um, um, to this? Well, firstly, what we've got to understand, what's happening on the behavioral side. And we, um, we came up with a hypothesis of behavior that we then tested with our LBS students. Um, and we found that what is happening is that you look at the two extremes of, um, of decision-making. You've got intuition on the left-hand side. Um, and for those who've read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, you know, he actually says often this is a very good way of making decisions. You go on gut and instinct, it uses experience, um, but it does have some weaknesses. It can be um, subject to bias. Um, it's not auditable, it's difficult to repeat or explain why you took that decision. Um, and it's actually very dependent on experience, so it's not very scalable. 
you have to have a lot of experience to be confident of doing gut decisions. And if you're running a big company, you can't have the whole company running on gut. But at the other extreme, when you've got information overload, you get over-analytical. You're hunting more and more data. You're getting um, you know, lost in the trees, if you like, um, and not seeing it. And it's very time-consuming and expensive. We ask people how much more money they were spending on teams of analysts and teams of people um, in their corporations. And, and most of them said it doubled in the last two years. And they're having to invest more people just to process this information. So they're kind of, you know, the tools and the interpretation and the technology that we have actually is not helping the, the um, it's helping the supply side. It's not necessarily helping the demand side on the interpretation of this. So the question is, of course, okay, what do you do about it? If the optimum way of behaving is to use enough experience and gut, but enough data, then you kind of need to be somewhere in the middle that has a more repeatable and more trustworthy form of making decisions. And what we come up with is a, we call it the, the, uh, the hierarchy of information decision making. But if you satisfy four elements of, of information, that it's trusted, it's connected to the outside world, it tells you where it is um, and what it means, it's contextualized, so it knows you know, what you are, who you are, what you're looking at, what you're doing, what your colleagues are doing, um, and it's channeled. So it understands whether you're on a PC or a mobile. It understands if you're in um, Aspen Festival or you're in London. It understands whether you're, um, and, and it understands how to get your attention. Then you've got information which is a way more usable and, and that you can, you can do this. And you know, a good example I like to use is on context. So if you go onto Google, um, and I run strategy at Thomson Reuters. I'm often looking at you know, economic things. And if I type in, I'm looking up you know, economic monetary union. So I type in EMU. Google doesn't know who I am. So what it does, and you can try this, it brings back seven pictures of big Australian birds. <laughs> I tried this on Bing. So I thought, well, Bing is saying it's more intelligent and it understands business. And you do it on Bing, it'll give you actually eight Australian large <laughs> birds. So you know, because, because the machines don't know who I am, they can't give me the information that I need. Um, I often think that if, if business people had invented search and not technologists, they wouldn't have called it search, they would have called it find. Huh. <laughs> thing to think about. So the technology hasn't really helped us yet, and so it's got a big way to go. The technology is guilty of a lot of this information creation, but it's not really helping us yet on the intelligent format of this information. So last and least, we did some tests. It's, it's small, it's early days, but we, um, and we had some fun with it. We went to the uh, LBS MBA class and we gave them 50 pounds. Um, and we said, you can triple your money. So we wanted to create a real life um, condition. We did pay them, by the way, if you're asking after this. Um, and we gave them, we separated them into two groups and we gave both groups exactly the same information. And their job was to absorb that information which is around paper and pulp industry and decide whether they should invest or sell into a real company that we'd hidden for obvious reasons. And what was interesting is the, um, the first group received the, um, the uh, you know, sort of unstructured information. It, was, it didn't really know what they were looking at. It was, it was too it was long. It was difficult to process. It was accurate. It was all the information that they needed. And you know, no surprise, they were 10% less accurate than group two that had the information in a much better format. Um, and because you're doing a trading decision, actually a 10% difference in accuracy can lead to a 40% difference in return. So as a business person, I kind of think, well, I'll take that. I understand that. That's actually quite good. But what was really interesting, a couple of things came out, was the predictability in group one, is that they were basically all over the shop on how long they took to make the decision. And what we'd said to them was that every, every additional minute that you took and every additional bit of information you absorbed, we would charge you another pound. So you have this interesting phenomena where the more time you're spending to take the decision, the more money you're going to make because of the return. 
And they were very unpredictable in both when they would make the decision um, and the accuracy of their decision. Um, so that was one thing. You can see that actually it's not just you get better results, but you get more predictability of your results. And that's important for a business leader. But the really interesting thing about Group 1, and this proves the point about we all want more information even though we have enough, is that when we interviewed after the event, the average time they took the decision was about two and a half minutes. Sorry, the average time they took was about four minutes. But they all said that on average they had enough information to make the decision after two minutes. But they spent an extra two minutes, double the time, just getting more, just to get more confident and explore more avenues. So it kind of does prove the point that you know, maybe we are guilty of actually wanting more information even though we have enough um, and it's trustworthy enough to make the, um, to make the decision. So that's it. Um, the universe is exploding. We're overwhelmed, and people are either resorting to gut <coughs> or, or over-data analysis. And what we need is not more information, but better information. Thank you. Thanks, David. So if people feel that they have enough or too much information but want more information, that's obviously good for your business. <coughs> How do they want it? How do we want it packaged, though? What insights have you gotten into that? Well, I think I mean I, I picked on context, um, but I think what what we need to do is understand the, the user. You know, who are you? Um, what did what what do you do? What are you looking for? You know, are you just a general reader or are you a scientific researcher? And then give you the information and the right information in that format. Um, and you can go a long way with this because you can actually not only understand who you are, but understand what you looked at yesterday. So we shouldn't give you what we gave you yesterday. We should give you fresh information mm -hmm. and not repeat what we gave you yesterday. Yeah. So just one example, I think, of, of where you can improve. I, I think, John, do you have a thought? I, I was just going to say that I, I think that um, it, the, way, the way the perspective has been framed so far, it, it sounds like this is only really relevant to information services businesses and if you're not in the information service business, you're a user, and you, that's how you relate to this. I'd, I'd like to put on the table that actually this is an opportunity for virtually any kind of business. The whole notion of how you help your customers or your users to actually access information that's relevant and timely and contextualized to you is extremely powerful. There's a company that I've spent a lot of time looking at, uh, which is not very well known in the United States, called Lian Fung. Um, they're in the apparel industry. They're not an information services provider by any means, but they operate, they orchestrate a, a global network of 10,000 business partners uh, to uh, serve the needs of apparel designers. And one of their key value propositions to the apparel designers is they have deep knowledge and understanding of, in, uh, of the capabilities of these 10,000 business partners and can help to organize it and focus it for the particular needs of that apparel designer. Now, but in addition, they actually organize and, and orchestrate the supply network to deliver the apparel. But a key part of their value proposition is deep, just deep understanding of what's available out there. That's, that's an, uh, Tom Friedman talks about, talks about Lee and Fung and the world is flat as the ultimate global company, right? right. And <clears throat> they're the biggest distributor of apparel, at least, in the world, right? Yeah, they're not very well known, but uh, just a, a couple of stats. One is the, their revenue is today about $15 billion. They're growing at double-digit rates. And to make it relevant, if you walk through a shopping mall in the United States, uh, any shopping mall, go through all the stores in that shopping mall and look at all the apparel in those stores, roughly 40% of that apparel has been sourced through a Lian Fung network. Wow. 
So it's a major player. Well, it's interesting when you consider that Walmart, the biggest company in the world, um, has talked for many years that we're primarily an information company. Lee and Fung, which is their biggest supplier, biggest uh, in, their, in their supply chain also, probably would define itself as an information company, I guess. And it's interesting that actually Walmart about four months ago negotiated a major deal with Lee and Fung to turn over all their apparel sourcing and uh, supply uh, network activity to Lee and Fung. So this best, best in class supply, net supply chain manager has basically admitted that Lee and Fung has a superior way of providing that kind of information and capability access uh, relative to what they've done in the past. Interesting, Jim. And, and to be concrete about what we're talking about here with Lee and Fung and similar, similar companies, there is the way it does its business out of Hong Kong is essentially to know all the small factories in China. So that if you have you know, this coat you want to make, they know who at this moment has the buttons that, that can be done at a certain time and where there's been labor unrest and all the, all the rest. And it's interesting how I think, in a sense, Lee and Fung is on the waning edge. There's a lot of, of uh, competitors there in, in southern China, which feels if they have closer, you know, sort of fingertips into a, a number of, of the factories. L let me mention, if I might, a way to my perspective on information is sort of less business strategy oriented than in some other fields. And let me just give a couple of complementary points to this discussion, if, if I, I could. It is impressive that simultaneously we have this overwhelming flow of data that is affecting all of us. When we're talking, it raises the business uh, intelligence questions um, you talk about. And I am impressed that this exists at the same time that much of the world operates on sort of deliberately limited information. I'll, I'll give this, this analogy. Um, as sources of info have diversified within the United States, we see more and more the political phenomenon of people knowing only a, a sort of a particular channel of info that, that 30 years ago when the CBS Evening News or NBC were the sort of limited nighttime sources of information. There was a common ground of what people know, knew. Now people have their own cable networks, and we find in elections that people in different political parties, they believe different facts. So as we have more information, we have actually less broadly shared knowledge. Uh, in living recently in, in, in China, I found the same sorts of thing, that, that information is in theory available every place, but everybody there pretty much believes the same thing about certain political issues, whether it's Tibet or Taiwan or, or uh, the government's role or, or, or whatever. And so we have a paradox of for some people in some circumstances coping with, uh, with overload and many people responding by deliberately channeling and sort of having these, these funnels of uh, separate fact universes. Uh, one other point, I think that, that many people in the, the journalism business, which in different ways uh, many people on this platform and the, the conference share, have been in despair about how that business will survive. I think the trends that you illustrate suggest there is a real future for what journalism has classically <coughs> provided, which is contextualized, analyzed information. And so, in a sense, you are saying this is the modern definition of what journalism has been about for a long time. So it's finding the different business models to uh, get into the people's, in front of people's eyes. Yeah, that was that was very encouraging. That 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 point that you made about people reading more journals, I think I question, and I bet you do too, Jim, about how that how those or the how the material from those journals is going to be packaged and branded. Because I wonder, as a writer at Fortune for the last 26 years, how I mean my stories may be read if my brand, I. My byline is Patricia Sellers. 
and my content is good enough, but will it be sold? Will it be accessible to you under the fortune name, or will you just find my stories by Googling them? I don't know. Can I just uh, hog on on that for a second? I know I was speaking last. I'll, spe I'll start off on, on this one, too. I recently did a, a long story in The Atlantic, essentially their perspective on the news business from inside Google and similar, uh, similar companies. And what was fascinating is that in our business, we have all these almost religious arguments about will people pay for the news or will they not? And it's just the sort of uh, thing that, that you know, we've, we and our friends have discussed at a thousand journalism conferences. And I found that inside Google, that was not even an interesting question. Their assumption was, of course people are going to pay for this. All through human history, there's been a spectrum of how people paid for information, from things that were assumed to be free and made revenue in other ways and things that had very small circulations and very high prices. And just a matter of reconfiguration, reconfiguring that now for the era of mobile devices and everything else. So they thought, of course, what are you even talking about? People are going to pay for this. We just are working out the way that it will happen. I don't want to make this too much a discussion about journalism, but I want to ask Jim, <laughs> yeah. would you encourage young people today to go into so-called oh, print journalism? Uh, I, w I would encourage them to go into journalism, and I find the print versus all their medium uh, versus all their media that is that will be a sort of a tactical instrumental thing but yes i very much would and do encourage young people to go into journalism because exactly as we heard the basic function of explaining the world is only going to become more important and the journalism business has been sort of artificially stable over the last 40 or 50 years it's always been a tumultuous one and new business forms are being uh, made what now so somebody in his or her t early 20s is in a great position i think to have uh, to be part of a, of a new newly structured journalism business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. John? I just wanted to add something that as, as, as bleak or as challenging the picture that David uh, uh, painted at in terms of information overload and information access, I think that the situation's even worse, <laughs> just, just to get it on the table, in the sense that I think one of the byproducts of this information overload is we are so consumed with information things that can be expressed and quantified and, and made available to us on a screen, that we have lost sight of a different kind of information or knowledge, which is even more valuable in this world, which is tacit knowledge. In a rapidly changing world, the knowledge that I believe is most valuable is tacit knowledge, knowledge that we can't even express, that is so deeply embedded in each of us that we have a hard time expressing it to ourselves, much less to anybody else. And yet that's the most valuable knowledge. Again, going back to the Li and Fung example, just to make it concrete, their value is not in databases about these 10,000 business partners. Their value is that they have managers who deeply know each of these partners and understand in a very tacit way what that partner can actually do. In a, confronted with a new kind of apparel, a new kind of fabric, what that partner can do. So if we don't, if we're overloaded with information, all this quantified data, we have less and less time to focus on tacit knowledge. The problem with tacit knowledge is it requires long-term trust-based relationships to be expressed and communicated. That takes time. If you don't have the time, if you're consumed with all these screens of data that are, are occupying your day, you don't have time to connect with people that have the most valuable tacit knowledge that can be helpful to your business. And I think there's a real value in having people or, or entities, firms, that can help more effectively connect us to the tacit knowledge that's most valuable. 
And by tacit knowledge, you also, you, you also mean um, sort of, as you, I think you said, knowing what you don't know. Yes. And I think, about, I think about what is Fortune's most admired company, which is Apple. And we just came out the other day with the smartest people in Silicon Valley. And guess who we named as the smartest? <laughs> Steve Jobs. But you know, largely, the success of Apple has been coming out with products that people don't know that they know. So that's a company with tacit knowledge. But, you know, who has time to just sit and think today? So, David? I, I just want to respond to John, actually, about being concerned. Um, one interesting fact is that when the printing press was invented, what, 1500, actually a lot of people were worried about information overload. So this is it's not necessarily oh, <laughs> a new phenomenon. And, huh. and, and actually people were opposing this new technology. And in fact, when libraries were created, a lot of people were worried that you know people who didn't deserve that type of information would go in there and be overloaded. So it's not new. I, I do go back to the Lehman example, though. I do worry the fact that we've got more information um, and we're not looking at the right information. Um, and I, I do worry in the, in the next financial crisis won't be prevented unless we, we solve that. Um, to Jim's point on journalism, I think um, there the are two parts of that pyramid, trust and context. Those, to me, I think make it real. And I think without that, then there isn't a business model for journalism. But if it's, it's trusted and there's context, then it can actually be a, a valuable tool for that information tsunami because it can cut through it. But I think one of the things we worry about, and Jim, you, you mentioned this, um, in a world where consumers are more and more packaging their information to fit their interests, um, you know, the Jim Fallows channel, that's all I want to read. Like, you know, how do we discover new things? How do we how do we learn about things? That's what's so great about a gathering like this, where you know, ideas, ideas, ideas. I don't know anything about this. I think I'll explore this area. So, who has questions? We have two mic handlers. Wait for the mic. Uh, yes, one right over here. Are you implying that uh, Lee and Fung was involved in the design of the apparel or just in the uh, sourcing and production? It's a company in evolution. Uh, historically, it has not been involved in design. Their customers are apparel designers, and they'll take the designs and then find in their 10,000 partner network who are the best equipped at, in various stages of the production process to actually deliver that design to the marketplace. And they don't own any of the production facilities, any of the logistics operations. It's all done through their 10,000 partners. Their, their value is in deeply understanding who those partners are, what they can do, and then orchestrating the, the process. How about can, can I say something? I've spent some time, you know, we're going to the factories with these folks. And I think that the, the value they have to add is that the southern China manufacturing landscape is entirely unknowable from the outside point of view. You have, you go down a road someplace and you see but these little three or four story buildings with hundreds of employees inside and you don't know who's making what where. And so if you are a coat maker from, from France or whatever and you want to get something done, you go to these middlemen, whether it's Liam Fung or, uh, or uh, CPH or whatever, and you say, here's what I want, where can you do it? And they, they know the guy who this week in this factory in this, up this little hollow can do it this week. And so the, the business partners are mainly these manufacturers, these very small manufacturers. And I should say, at this point, they, again, they've been in evolution, but the majority of their 10,000 business partners are not in China anymore. 
they're all over the world. They have Latin American partners, partners in the Middle East, partners in Europe, Eastern Europe. So they can connect, depending on where the apparel designer is and where the retailer is, the best geographically located partner as well as the deepest skill around that particular apparel. And John, how does, how does, do you talk about Lee and Fung in your book quite a bit? Yes, it's, uh, it's been a, a, a company that we've been studying for a long time. Uh, we actually believe in a provocative point of view that most of the management innovation that's going on today is not occurring here in the United States. It's going on in, in China and India. And in fact, this afternoon, we've got a session on the power of pull, which will develop a little bit that provocative proposition. But Lian Fung is one of the classic examples of a company that's providing a set of services and a capability through business networks that most Western companies would throw up their hands and say, we can't do, as mm -hmm. witness Walmart as the leading edge player. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, we're all on this side of the room. Uh, Sophie, right here. Mm -hmm. Sophie Vanderbrook from Xerox. Yes, so uh, David, you showed all the information overload numbers. Uh, we at Xerox believe it's, of course, a great opportunity, as many people said, people are hungry for more information. And maybe all of you can elaborate a little bit on all the technologies, intelligent technologies that are emerging to really help people find exactly what they need and when they need it. Uh, for example, uh, we are working on many, but also Watson that IBM recently uh, made a big deal about a computer that's going to play Jeopardy. You can ask him any question and he's actually, you can actually play with it on the web. And so there are many, many systems emerging that will make information overload ultimately mute. That's my first question to elaborate on that. And secondly, do you believe a decade from now most information will still be free and unstructured or do you believe it will be contained in proprietary knowledge domains that people really will have to pay for to access? Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the big numbers do come from the technology firms because obviously they're excited about more storage and disk and CPU. Um, just a point, from our point of view, it's not necessarily a good thing because I, I talked about that 10 billion trade updates. We have to carry that. <laughs> um, that costs us money because Moore's <laughs> law doesn't catch up quick enough. So. It's not necessarily a good thing for us. It's, it's really not a good thing for many corporations. They're having to spend a, a lot more money um, to process all this um, information. So what are the, I mean, the tools that are out there, um, you know, obviously storage, um, uh, being able to store and process this, and um, there's a lot of storage technologies out there. I think one tool that I'll um, talk about, which, you know, uh, I don't want to plug our own, but, I, but just because I know it well, is a, a tool called Open Calais. Um, and what Calais does, it's, it's available free on the web, actually, if you want to try it. Um, is it takes unstructured language and text like a news article and it will use language heuristics to tell you what that story is about and, and tag it with the metadata. So it does two things. It, 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 it not only kind of synthesizes a, a unstructured text into a summary, but it also links that into the rest of the web with metadata. And that's very powerful because then you can connect that information, be it an article in a newspaper or an analyst report or a bit of scientific research, to other parts of the web domain um, automatically at speed of processing power, not speed of human. So that's just one hmm. great technology. David, what, how do you spell that? Uh, Calais, as in the French town. C-A-L-A-S, opencalais.com. And you can go in there and throw in a, you know, one of the um, Fortune articles or anything, and it'll, it'll <laughs> actually tell you what Paddy was writing about. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the Cliff Notes version, huh? Um, and then your second question, free, free in, um, versus paid for. I think both. I mean, I think there's room for both. Um, and the models will... People will still pay for 
um, information that is specialist in their domain. I think what free does, though, is it remi reminds us as information providers that the gap between free and paid for has to keep increasing, and we have to keep improving what we're delivering that's paid for versus what's available for free. So for us, it's a good thing. It's, it's reminding us that you know, we have to keep investing and innovating um, to do that. Jim? Mm -hmm. the, uh, just, just to address this briefly, it does impress me that while the technology of information is accelerating you know, faster than ever before, as, as David was showing, uh, there always has, has, has been this tension between the limits of the human mind and human personality and the information of any given era. And so I think we, one reason that, for example, Shakespeare's plays still ring true to us, it's still the basic uh, human being, the basic uh, search of what's knowable, what, what, what's unknowable. And so I think we are, we are seeing the latest chapter in a very, very long drama in which people try to assign priority to the various things coming uh, uh, into them to be aware of the things they don't know, which has been a, a, a challenge all through, through history, and to find ways to both look for things purposefully and be surprised by new information. So I think uh, the constants of human nature will also affect how this information age mm -hmm. works. John, what, what, what companies, besides Lee and Fung, are the real winners here? And Thomson Reuters. And the, and the Atlantic, <laughs> and, and Timec. And Timec. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, it, it's a lot of uh, opportunity for a lot of different companies because in my mind, this is a white space. This whole notion of how do you manage return on attention for customers, and it's again, not just information services businesses, but in any arena of business activity, or for that, ex for that matter, education, nonprofits, in every arena, we are challenged by this information overload. So positioning yourself as the trusted advisor who can help provide the context and the uh, curation and the channeling is, is going to be well positioned. I do think to be provocative at the end of the day, it does require fundamentally redefining what business you're in. So I'll, I'll take the media business just to uh, uh, be provocative here. Uh, the media business is very concerned about having their content in front of the audience's eyes. The trusted advisor that I'm talking about doesn't care where the content comes from. It can come from any source, and that's part of the value you're providing to the customer is saying, I'm not just gonna deliver you the content that I happen to have developed. I'm gonna help connect you with that content wherever it is in the world, and I'm going to deeply understand the context for you so I can become a trusted advisor, and I think that to be really serious about context, you have to have a 360 degree view of that customer, that individual customer, and their context. And you cannot possibly do that if you are a product company just pushing your product to the customer unless you've got a customer who just sources from you your product uh, set. You will never have a 360 degree view of who that customer is and what their needs are. That's a key requirement to deliver on the. Context. And then that makes me think that the that like the news aggregators are going to win against Time Inc. and the the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would say the news aggregators that we see today are very primitive implementations of where I see the opportunity. I think again, it's developing a very deep understanding of the individual user in a way that most of the news aggregators just don't do today. They're in the business of bringing together lots of news and then you can just pick and sort. And yeah. I think particularly the value here is around something that you mentioned earlier, this notion of serendipity. 
finding things that you didn't even know existed, and more importantly, I believe, people that you didn't even know existed, that serendipity is going to become more and more valuable in a world that is rapidly changing and where we don't even know what questions to ask, what to look for. But if you have a trusted advisor who deeply understands your individual context, they can be a trusted advisor in terms of recommending things to you and people to you that you didn't know existed but were extraordinarily relevant to you. The original news aggregator was, of course, Henry Luce and Britt Haddon. That was the business model for Time Magazine. So with different technologies, we've had you know, sort of uh, ever-evolving news media, and I think we'll see some of the same uh, patterns repeat themselves. That's interesting, yeah. Um, yes, way back here. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> not near, wait, wait for the mic. I want to reach people in the back, though. Um, my name is Sue Ellen Freed from Kansas. John, I appreciated your uh, reference to tacit knowledge and the difference, implying the difference between wisdom and knowledge. And what I'm concerned about, and I wonder how you all feel, about an overload of information that sometimes transfers into belief trumping reason. I'm sorry, into? Belief trumping reason. Belief. That's a great question. In the, in the political realm, I think we have seen that <laughs> notably in the last generation in the U.S., where, as mentioning earlier, polls after most of the elections show that the, for presidential candidates, people who support one or the other, they believe different facts to be true. They don't just have different principles on big government, small government. They just believe different things about the world. And just to give a, a, a example in the news, most viewers, uh, well, most Republican Party enthusiastic supporters now, something like almost half believe that President Obama is not a U.S. citizen or was not born in the U.S. So, I mean, that's a, you can, some of you may believe that too. I'm just saying it's a factual matter. It's, it's, uh, there has been this polarization and that is probably has more consequences in the political realm than it may even in some business realms. Well, you know, there was a story about a week and a half ago, I think, on the front page of the New York Times about um, religion apps for the iPad. Did you see this? And there are all oh, yes. these. There are all these apps that you can download for free or a dollar ninety nine. That are most of them have the word fact in the name, and it's like religious facts, God facts, and it's either <laughs> telling you that God exists or God doesn't exist, and you just download the app to get your whole arsenal of information to make your argument. What's a fact today? What is, you know, what's fair and balanced? What's <laughs> and I, I will say, I think that is the danger of personalization, at least the way that it has been framed, is this notion of you specifying what you're looking for, what you need. Uh, there becomes a very self-reinforcing cycle there, where if you have certain beliefs and are only wanting to hear about those beliefs, that leads, and I think, has played a significant role in the polarization we're seeing in political debates today. And people getting their, I mean, especially young people, getting their information or having their news feed be you know, a social network. Um, you know, their friends say this is true, so it's true. But I think that's uh, the difference between personalization and contextualization. Yes. And our exactly. customers say to us in the professional world, don't tell us, don't give us what we, you think we need. Right understand who we are and then let us choose. Exactly. And mm -hmm. that's the difference. Between that's the a huge difference. 
Uh, where are the, okay, Mike's right here, yes. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask the panel whether they think that there are certain kinds of information that you know, really can't be solved by business alone. And I'm thinking now about the explosion of information in the life sciences where you know, there, there are multidisciplinary areas of knowledge that are being pulled together. These have conflicting terminologies, a uh, fair amount of domain complexity. You know, we're starting to see some consortia of universities, uh, large companies, even some government funding and involvement. I wonder what your feeling is about this as, as the applicability of this as a model for addressing large information problems. Uh, so I, I have a, my theory on this would be what makes journalism both important and problematic now and through history is that it shares a trait with say education and perhaps medical care and some other fields in that it's simultaneously a business and has to be a business. That's how those of us in it are paid and it's how uh, corporations decide to go into it and it has ramifications beyond the strictly business world. It has public externalities, as education does, as, as uh, medical care does. And so in different stages of technological development and realms of knowledge, it's necessary to put together those two parts of the equation. There has to be a business basis for people who will, whose job will be interpreting this, learning about uh, the cross-domain specialties and all the rest. But it can't, if it's purely a business operation, then all of the public interest and effects of whether people understand correctly or incorrectly this, this emerging uh, field, uh, those, those are not captured purely by the business model. So I think a long-term problem in journalism has now new acuteness in how to balance the necessary business foundation for providing the information with all the externalities that affect all of us. And so any of these consortia are probably a good step towards solving that long-term uh, problem. I'll just put in a plug. There's a session after this one on uh, bringing drugs to market. And there's a very interesting group called the Myelin Repair Foundation that will be represented on the panel. And I think they're at the leading edge of, of helping to cross those disciplinary boundaries, creating a common framework for not only dialogue, but focused research that can leverage the, the different disciplines. So, yeah, huge value. Yes, in the yellow right here. Uh, Don Spear of Bethesda, Maryland. This is a question similar uh, to the prior one, but relating to geographically based information. There's been a lot of reference to that in some of these discussions. And I'm told that upwards of 60% of this deluge of data that we have has a geographic component, which is important. It could be an address in a spreadsheet. Uh, it could be a, a map with latitude, longitude data but that that data is kind of in the state now of word processed uh, documents 20 years ago where one system doesn't talk to another and it's very hard to get at. Is this uh, a significant issue? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what I observe is a lot of data that's arriving is, is kind of hinged on a few key kind of keys, if you like, there's a couple of keys. I think geo is one, I think legal entity I think person, uh, I think in, to go back to the life sciences question, the DNA genome is another one, and there's these kind of pivot points. I don't think yet the world has really figured out how to make those pivot points talk to each other very effectively and to map information onto one of those or sometimes onto multiple uh, ones of those. I think geo, you're right, geo is probably, I think 
business sort of got its head around companies and legal entities because a lot of the information was produced by financial services. And I think that was almost the kind of wave one of this information explosion. I think as wave two is sort of healthcare, life sciences, these areas, then people, DNA is becoming another pivot point. But I think geographic um, as well, I think if you look at security information, for example, and identifying people, well, what they're actually trying to do is map a person to a geolocation because that's where an event happened. So, yeah. Can I say one thing? I, I think actually is a brighter prospect for geo-information, which is still valuable than many others, because there is more or less a universally agreed lat-long standard. You know that that that, there, that uh, around the world, you know, that there are four. The fact that the U.S. did have a G this GPS-imposed standard and has made it uh, available outside military uh, connotations means there's a head start here compared to what there was in word processing or other fields. David, you mentioned to me when we saw each other last night that you presented this to an audience in Beijing. And uh, is there any difference in the way different cultures sort of uh, take in this information? That yeah, and it, it's fascinating. I was thinking about Jim's point about we shouldn't assume information is equally available mm -hmm. to everyone everywhere, um, not just because of political <coughs> reasons, but because of evolution of technology mm -hmm. and, and access. But yeah, we did present it in Beijing. We had a panel of similar panel not as esteemed, of course. But, <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> uh, but uh, we had professionals in the room, scientists, lawyers, um, bankers. And uh, initially, the discussion took off exactly as I'd expect the discussion here to take off. But as we got towards the end, actually, um, the level of kind of almost anger in the room that people were creating wrong information was boiling up. Yeah. And a few people were saying, actually, that we should fine individuals or companies for creating bad information <laughs> yeah. um, that was out there. And at that point, we had to close things down before it, <laughs> it got too far. But it was, it, was an in, it, was, it was very different towards the end. Yeah. Uh, who else has a question? Well, here? you're looking for a question. I'll add a sentence. Uh, my yeah. wife, Deb, who's here, used to run the Pew Internet uh, Project Studies in China. One mm. of the things she found is there was overwhelming popular support for censoring the internet in China for that reason, yeah. that there had been this sort of climate uh, condition of wanting to keep the evildoers from polluting public knowledge on the internet. Yeah, and I think that's what came through it. Yeah. It's that we, we see censorship as something sort of cast down by the, by the government, but actually there was a, a boiling yeah. up from below that yeah. actually filtering information, at least, was something they wanted to do. That's interesting. Yes, right here. I think this is probably a question for John. I'm Rick Grafay. Uh, if, in fact, trust and context become critical and uh, understanding of the user becomes critical in terms of making information useful, and you talk about information flows rather than information knowledge bases being critical, that means tomorrow the context is very different from today, right? What do you suggest in terms of assuring that uh, the provider of information actually is able to be, remain trusted and provide context tomorrow? How do you, how do you keep pace with that delta in terms of you know, context and trust? It, it's a great question. I do think that if you take seriously this notion of context, which I think is one of the critical concepts that David talked about, it does require a deep commitment, not just to the individual, but monitoring on a day-by-day -day basis what that how that individual's needs are evolving and changing, as well as what other new information sources or knowledge sources are available. Uh, and I, I would say that while it's a huge challenge, I think it's also a huge opportunity in the sense that if you look at the economics of these businesses, they have incredible scope economics. The more you see, uh, both in terms of an individual's context and 
the ability to compare contexts across many different individuals to provide the kind of collaborative filtering and recommendations based on what other people are doing, that becomes a huge source of strategic advantage. And once you get to critical mass in any of these domains, it becomes very difficult to unseat that provider uh, because they just have such a, a, a much richer view of that context than anybody else could potentially acquire. I'll volunteer one other one sentence um, comment. The aspect of the data explosion that is personally most troubling to me is simply managing distraction. I know this is a whole <laughs> other topic and it's something that, that you alluded to, but I think in the, the ongoing hum battle of human nature against the different environment, that, that is to me the, the hardest thing to, to struggle with and to therefore look for ways to deliberately be disconnected for a while. So it's yeah. actual, actually And thing. seeing the, I mean, as journalists, seeing the forest for the yeah. trees and, and, you know, I, I just, I, I dug up, remember when the, um, when those Northwest airline pilots got distracted on their laptops <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they flew way, way beyond Minnesota. And uh, I think they ended up over like Denver or something, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my but, bed is you know, this, this issue <laughs> is, is so, so important. And I remember, you know, some of the best bosses who I've, best CEOs I've interviewed over the years, you know, from A.G. Laffley at, Procter and Gamble, and you know Meg Whitman when she was at eBay used to talk about how deciding not to what to do, deciding what not to do is just as important, or maybe as important as what to do. And I remember when um, this year, or you know December, when sports is, sounds like a non sequitur, but um, when Sports Illustrated named Derek Jeter the Sportsman of the Year, one of the things about Derek Jeter and the story, the cover story talked about this, is how he could, he was like the best on the, on the Yankees and the, one of the best in baseball at just not being distracted and just not letting the, the noise around him get, get to him. And that's what we, I think everyone in this room struggles for. So I'd actually like to close this panel by asking each of you, what is the smartest thing that you do personally to manage your information overload. I, I'm a very <laughs> active user of social networks. I've become increasingly reliant on both my Facebook network and my Twitter network to help filter and identify really interesting things. And I've picked my network in part based on diversity so that I'm not just dealing with people that run research centers in Silicon Valley but I'm dealing with artists, I'm dealing with scientists, and relying on them to point me to things that are particularly relevant and useful, and it's been very powerful for me. Doesn't that sounds like a lot of distraction to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it actually filters in a way that gives me an opportunity to zero in on things. The serendipity factor in particular is huge. Uh, I find things that I never would have encountered if I had just been looking for them. Good for you, that's great. Jim? Uh, the world is made of different kind of people. I manage my life by deliberately not doing anything with Facebook at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 my, my equivalent of that is putting myself in geographically different situations as often as I can, going to that's live great. in different countries, traveling a lot. So it's the physical version of serendipity of just going to Lin Yi, China, or wherever, and seeing what, what happens when I get there. 
Right. I'm probably more like Jim, less like John. I, I agree in channel management, so I've got one email system yeah. only. I'm on one network, LinkedIn. I, I did open a Facebook account, and I shut it down because it just exploded immediately <laughs> with stuff. But look, something else I'll add is that in my job as you know, running strategy, um, and this is a point um, which I think is really important, I've got some really smart people on the team because despite all of these tools and all this information, actually you need smarter people to actually tell you what it means. Um, and so that's really how I manage the information. Terrific. Thank you all. Thank you. Go pursue your serendipity. <laughs>